Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I do pray that you would uh, grant grace as we hear this word and that you would enable us not to only listen with our ears, but even more so that it would be understandable to us. And, and not only that, that it would sink deep within our hearts, really, the very essence of who we are. And it would define us and, and give us identity in you and give us strength and power in order to walk with you. So thank you for this, your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to James in chapter 1. James chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 18. As you might suspect, we won't get to all that today. But uh, you can see at least uh, the context there. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, please. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him who asks, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived birth, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Whatever time it takes, I want us to take up this little epistle, James. We're coming on the heels, if you've been with us, of working our way through a letter from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, a pastor in Crete named Titus. And as we work through that, what we found is that Paul wanted to stress for us that godliness accords with faith in Jesus and a knowledge of the truth about God and his gospel. So, so, so godliness follows or accompanies, if you will, um, belief. Um, we, we saw that as Paul writes to us that, that the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men and that we are, as those who've been redeemed, are to be zealous for good works. So James follows that, that same theme. So I just want to do it again. I want to reinforce that relationship 
between faith and life. Faith and then how we live. Faith and the works that we do. We found how it is that James expresses our salvation. It's in verse 18 of, of, of chapter 1. He says, of his own will, that is, of the Father's own will, of God's own will. We know he initiated our salvation, sent Jesus to accomplish it. And he and Jesus poured forth the Holy Spirit to bring it to us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That is, we heard the word of truth and he called us by it and brought us um, to our salvation. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so, so we see how our salvation was wrought by God through his word that called us, that brought us to faith, if you will, and salvation. And then we know, of course, in chapter 2, uh, verse 14, the famous sort of expression from James, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And so we can see the tie between God calling us by his word and us living that faith out in how we, in how we live, what we do. So similar theme, no big surprise there that we could read two books of the Bible and find the same consistent, uh, consistent theme. But I want to take us through that, if God will help us. Just a bit of background, of course. The letter has the title of James, who is the author. So we find uh, this book of James, like a few others in the New Testament, to be a bit different than Paul's, at least, and how they're named. Uh, Paul's letters are are named uh, by whom they've been written, and others named by the author, James, first and second Peter, first and second third John, named by the author. So we call these general or even Catholic epistles, meaning they're, they're written to the church at large as opposed to one particular church like Ephesus or Rome or churches in Galatia, that kind of thing. So, so just a, a note there. And, and, and James, um, who lists himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, we wonder who, who that is really. In, in one sense, it doesn't matter that much. It won't really change how we understand what we're reading. But we do know that in the New Testament, uh, there were three James, I don't know how you say it, Jameses or James. Well, you know what I mean. Uh, there are three of them. Uh, there was James, the son of Zebedee, who was the brother of John, who was in the inner circle of Jesus, of Peter, James, and John fame. Uh, it's unlikely that it's that James, because that James we read in Acts chapter 12, was killed, was martyred, and that would have been about 44-ish A.D. And while we think this was one of the first letters written in the New Testament, James probably before A.D. 48 anyway, uh, that it wasn't that James. It was the second James, listed as James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the 12, but we don't know anything about him. We don't hear anything about him other than the list that he's in with the disciples of Jesus. And so, so it's unlikely to be him. It's likely to be a more... A well-known James, who we know is the half-brother, we could say, of Jesus. Um, uh, we know there's a list of siblings of Jesus given in the New Testament. Uh, some have encouraged us to think of them cousins of Jesus, but it really, they're his siblings. Uh, and we call them half-siblings because we know that Jesus uh, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, as opposed to a conception between Mary and Joseph, but it appears as if they had other children, Mary and Joseph. And so, so James was one of these half-brothers of Jesus. What's fascinating, if it's him, 
is that he doesn't make mention of that. He doesn't use that to say, well, I grew up with Jesus. You should listen to me. You know, I I was raised with him by the same mom and dad and all of that. And so I I know him really intimately well. Because while James was growing up, even before the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, he, like the other siblings of Jesus, didn't believe in Jesus. We find that in John chapter 7, verse 5. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, we find that that, that, that the siblings of Jesus and his mom uh, thought, at least at one point, that he was mad. And so, so we, we get that. But something happened to this James that caused him to believe. And it's the same thing that caused all of these early disciples of Jesus to believe. It was seeing him. It was this resurrection. We read in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance, Paul writes, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. And it was at that point, of course, that he got it who this half-brother was. And so now when he describes himself, he lists himself as a servant of God and a servant, if you will, of the Lord, his master, Jesus Christ, the one who is the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the one who is the savior. And so this is that, James, most likely. Um... And then he writes, as he puts it here in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And you get the sense that he's writing like an Old Testament prophet to these these Jewish people in the Old Covenant who, who were dispersed, who were exiled and went all over the place and weren't living at home, if you will. But 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 we get the sense that, that James is, is, is writing to us to say, I'm writing to believers in Jesus, but I'm calling the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So it may be that James is writing to those Jewish Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem when persecution hit after the stoning of Stephen. For instance, if you look in Acts and, excuse me, chapter 8, we uh, read this. In verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution, that is, the execution of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then we uh, see in chapter 11 another allusion, if you will, to to this scattering of those believers in Jerusalem, verse 19 of Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, uh, speaking the word uh, to no one except except Jews. And so it, it, some believe that, 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 that James is writing to that group of people. It would be no surprise because James was significant in the church in Jerusalem. You might remember that in Acts chapter 15, um, Paul and some elders came to Jerusalem to discuss how it is that these Gentiles were becoming Christians. And they, and they discussed that, if you will. And, and it was James who spoke up and said, let's handle it like this. And everyone agreed. 
So it wouldn't be surprising to us that he had a heart for these particular Christians, those who were dispersed. And it was fairly early on, it was in the, you know, mid to late 40s that he wrote. And so most of the believers would have been Jewish believers. And they were scattered. And they were being persecuted. Uh, the persecution is evidenced by the having to scatter and to go in other places. And so it wouldn't be surprising that he writes to them and says, okay, I know your situation. I'm still your pastor, your elder, your bishop, however you want to put it. And, and so uh, uh, here's, what I'm, here's how you're to live in the situation in which you find yourself now. Others would say, well, you know, in the New Testament, there is a certain identification between believing Israel, the Old Covenant, and those who are of, in the church. In fact, Paul uses the expression of the church. He calls us the Israel of God. And so there is a sense that the church doesn't replace Israel, but is grafted on, especially with those who are believers in the Old Covenant. So Paul could say that all who believe in Jesus are sons of Abraham. And so we're kind of all together in this. And so it could just be an expression to say, for all of you who are dispersed everywhere, believers, I'm writing to you. And to be honest, it doesn't matter. It really won't affect how we understand this. It might nuance it in a couple of places. But, but just by way of understanding a bit about who James is perhaps and to whom he is writing, ultimately we realize he's writing through them to us. And so we need to listen in the context of our own lives. And notice how he begins. Because it's a rather general letter, you, you, you look, he doesn't begin with, hi, how are you? He doesn't begin with, uh, I know of your faith and I love you. He doesn't believe, begin as Paul uh, does in his more personal kinds of letters to churches and he knows. But, but, but he just gets right after it. And he, and he writes, if you're really paying attention, and I know you are, if he writes, when he writes something that's outlandish. Because he's writing to people who have been scattered. He's writing to refugees, right? He's writing to people who have been displaced. They're not at home. He's writing to people who have lost, if you will, everything for the sake of Jesus. They've lost their homes. No doubt been rejected by their families. They have no... In a sense, they've lost their historic religious connection. They're, they're not connected to the temple or the synagogue. And if they've lost their jobs because of this, they have no real welfare because that was all connected to temple and synagogue, wherever they happen to go. And the new places they go and they even talk to their Jewish friends, they would not be received because they're, they're now alien to, to Judaism, if you will, in the strict sense. And so unless the ones to whom they talk to believe, then so you get the sense of, of their situation. And he writes to them, and he says to them, Count it all joy, given the trial that you're facing right now. Here's how I want you... If they would write to him and they say, James, how should we understand our circumstance right now? And he would say, well, I want you to count it or think of it or consider it or esteem it, value it. As you would something that you would say, that brings me great joy. That's how you're to value this thing. And you go, that's crazy. Right? That's crazy. Don't you know that we're homeless? I mean, really? 
Don't, don't you know that we have no friends? Don't you know that our families have rejected us? Don't you know that we've lost everything and here we find ourselves in another city, another, another place uh, and that's foreign to us, really? And, and you're saying, think about it like a birthday party. Think about it like you just got something you really like and really is good for you. And you say, count it joy. Now, we've defined joy not as an emotional feeling of, 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 of real happiness and high necessarily. It doesn't exclude that. But this sense of, of, of a profound and a deep and abiding sense of well-being. All is well. What, what James is saying to them is that I want you to take the circumstance you're in, which is horrible... And I want you to think of it like you would think about a situation you could look at and simply say, all is well. And he says, now, you can only do that because of something that you know. And what you know is that under God, this situation has a purpose. And that purpose makes the trial worth it. All right? You see, you know, he's just not very pastoral here, right? He just kind of strikes them where they hurt the most. And he says, I want you to think about this circumstance, this situation, as you would think about a situation that brings you joy. I want you to, to, to say of this situation, in the midst of it, all is well. And you can only do that because of something you know. And what you know is that God has a purpose for this and his purpose is so good for you that you can say, whatever I'm going through right now is worth it. So that's where we find ourselves uh, ourselves here. Now, um, he says, when you go through uh, various, when you meet various kinds of Various kinds of trials. Now, trials, by definition, try us. That's what a trial is. It tries us, right? Uh, it, it, it tries us. It tests us, really. He even uses that, that language, that it, it tests us. It, it tries us. And for them, it was probably very specific. If they were these dispersed Jewish believers, then it was this persecution and all that would come from that. Uh, we will read in James' letter that he speaks very pointedly to those who are poor. And how they should live. And very pointedly about the oppression that can come to the poor about from the rich. Because these believers are experiencing that. Real poverty. So, so we mustn't kind of romanticize this. We mustn't think about ourselves necessarily. They, at that point, they have, they're experiencing real poverty. And he's saying that to them. But then he says various trials or, or manifold trials or, or all kinds of trials from little to big. Those ones we look back upon and say, oh, that wasn't a big a deal, as big a deal as I thought it was. All the way that sort of change our lives. Those kinds of trials, you see. And so he broadens it from just them to everyone and the difficulties that we face in life. Have you ever wondered why? The Bible talks so much about trials and tribulations and afflictions and all that. I mean, you can't hardly go too many pages or even verses in the scripture unless you're reading something about difficulty, about affliction, about tribulation. 
I mean, we use those words in church probably more than anybody else does in the world. And, and the, the reason that it talks about those is, is because it's talking about all the time the effects of sin, the effects of the fall on our lives. And, and it brings this kind of suffering in life. Uh, we, we do everything rationally that we can to avoid this kind of suffering. It's rational to try to avoid this kind of suffering. But the truth of the matter is that we can't, right? The suffering Suffering really happens uh, to us. There's, 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 there's personal suffering. You can list in your own mind what that is in your life. Whether it's relational, personally. Whether it's physical. Whether it's emotional. Right? You know, the kinds of suffering that happens, the hurts that you feel. It might be financial. Right? There's the social ones that, and political ones that, that we, we understand in terms of injustice and poverty and and, and how that affects us in the course of our lives, strains and stresses us, tries us. War. We wonder, does God really love? Is God really good? It tries all these things, you know that. And personally, is he with me? Does he really love me? Does he really hear my prayers? These, these are the things that try that in our lives, right? They really push us in the midst of all that. Uh, a commentator named Alex uh, Mater uh, puts it like this. He says, we've all met people who, through the different terms suited to their differing experiences, would concur with the sad words of one elderly man. In other words, he says, everybody understands where this guy's coming from. He says, I used to go to church, but five years ago, my wife and my only daughter died within six months of each other. And after that, it didn't seem worth the bother. It's hard to use such a bitter experience as an illustration without seeming either to criticize the speaker for not being more resolute in the face of calamity or to minimize the sharpness of his human sorrow. But no such criticism or insensitivity is met. It is an only too often repeated fact that such faith as we possess collapses before the storm of sorrow or pain or disappointment or whatever it may be. You get that, don't you? You've heard that before in the lives of people. You might have even felt that. You know, this happened in my life and so I just simply can't face God. I I can't be with the people I've lost in a sense, the faith that I had that trial Um, we may say we say that we believe that God is our father but as long as we remain remain untested on on the point our beliefs fall short of steady conviction but suppose the day comes as it does and will when circumstances seem to mock our creed what we believe when the cruelty of life denies his fatherliness His silence calls in question his almightiness and the sheer haphazard, meaningless jumble of events challenge the possibility of a creator's ordering hand. It's in this way that the life's trials test our faith. Right? Do you understand? We we get that. Now, Now, something that we need to realize is that James says, when you meet trials of various kinds... It's the same expression that uh, 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 Jesus uses when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says that a man fell upon robbers. 
In other words, they came after him. We get the sense that these trials really do happen. They happen to us. No matter how much we try to leverage ourselves against them and ensure ourselves against them and all that, it's just part of the human situation. These things happen sometimes to us in terms of persecution because of our faith, sometimes simply because we live in a fallen world and and stuff happens, right? Um, The Greek word for trials is the word parasmos. Some years ago, when I was talking about this, I referenced a bumper sticker that would be inappropriate for me to name uh, from the pulpit or even probably in civilized company. But uh, one, uh, but the, the expression was, something happens. And so my friend took that upon a vanity plate. And so for years, I don't know if it's still there or not, uh, simply says, parasmos happens. Right? Trials happen. They really happen. We meet them. They introduce themselves to us in various and sundry kinds of ways. They're really unavoidable. Now, what I appreciate about this elderly man's situation, we said this tragedy struck me. Therefore, in a sense, I lost my faith. Each of us right now needs to realize this, that those kinds of tragedies are happening all the time to people. And so if you're going to lose your faith over them, lose it now. Right? Don't wait till it just happens to you. Realize these things happen all the time. And understand this too. That under the loving, guiding hand of God, they happen to us as well. All right? Trials like this. Now, what God tells us here in this passage is these trials really, really do uh, have a purpose. Everybody sort of believes that. If you're going to be sane, if you're going to live life, you've got to deal with these things some way. Now, some people live in denial, like, that'll never happen to me. Now, that's only a short-term fix, right? Because eventually these things happen to people. When you're young and healthy and things are well or whatever, you can sort of live in that kind of denial. But, but the truth of the matter is, these things happen to people, to all kinds of people. And so to live in that kind of denial isn't wise or rational. Uh, some uh, are fatalists in the sense that, well, stuff happens and there, there's good stuff and bad stuff. I just have to make the most of it. Uh, sometimes uh, it turns out to, for good and eventually it'll kill me and that'll be that. That's just life. We're going to make the most of it. Most people that I run into who are unbelievers uh, simply hold the believing view. They say, well, uh, bad things happen, difficult things happen, but, 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 but good will come. And in fact, we applaud unbelievers, even in our culture, who go through difficult things and grow from it and, ex- and express their uh, experience to us. We say, way to go. You persevered through this, Right. But, but we don't have to go on just what we might think. We can go on the very word of God for us, for his children. He tells us we need to grab a hold of this. Here's how I want you to understand the trials of life. Whether they're your fault or whether they're not, or whether they come to you from the outside or whether, when you meet them. Here's how I want you to think about them. Don't think about them as tragedies. Don't think about them as, as disappointments. Don't think about them to discourage you. Don't think about them in ways that are going to destroy you. Don't, don't think, oh, this is going to destroy me. Think like this. This will prove my own well-being, the well-being of my soul before God. 
This will show you that. And that'll be worth it at the very end of it all, you see. And that's what we're to think and that's how we're to behave. He says, consider them, think about them uh, like that, like this joy. You see, joy is really to be part of our DNA. Joy uh, is to be true for, for Christians. You remember in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he said to them, I tell you these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. So I want you to know, no matter what's happening, uh, you'll face tribulations, Jesus very honestly said to them in the course of that night. You'll face those who are against you because they hated me. He's very honest in the course of that night. But he says, what I want by telling you what I'm telling you is that you can have the very joy that I have. I know, Jesus would say, that all things are well. I want you to know that too. My joy be in you. Same joy that I have. And your joy would be complete. The benediction that Paul gives to the church in Rome, for instance, in Romans in chapter 15 and uh, verse 13, he said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. He said, I want you to have this joy. I want you to have this profound sense that all is well. He would say here, James would, in the midst of these trials, that you would know that all is well, even in the midst of this, uh, this trial. In fact, Paul even said of his own, his own ministry, he said, I work for your joy. Everything that I do, I'm working for your, for your joy. In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, he puts it like this. There, chapter 3. No, no, chapter... I'm in Galatians. Excuse me. I'll get to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 24, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work for you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. That Paul's whole ministry was geared that people would have this joy. In fact, this was his, his prayer for them in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 11. He says... May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I want you to to live this life knowing that all is well, even in the midst of these these trials. And again, as I said, it's it's based upon what we know. You realize the privilege we have of being Christians is that God reveals himself and his intentions and his plans to us. Again, Jesus, John chapter 15, speaks to his disciples and again says what is almost the unthinkable. Verse 14 of John 15. Verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you get the sense of that? Jesus is saying that we're friends. Oh yeah, we're still servants. He's still the master. But in the midst of that, he's saying there's an intimacy here. We're friends. And here's what what, uh, distinguishes a friendship. He says, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. 
says, this is what friends do. Masters don't tell their servants their intentions. They just say, go do this. But friends do. For friends, we, we talk to each other. I know your life. You know my life. I, you tell me what you love, and I tell you what I love and hate and all those kinds of things. That's what a, a friendship is. We, we share life, and we share this with one. He says, we're friends. And, and of course, the verse that I go back to in my own life very often, and I've shared with you probably more often than you want to hear it, is from Psalm 25 and verse 14, where the psalmist says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Another translation of friendship is the secret counsel. So there's something. You remember when Jesus with his disciples, he said, it's for you to know. It's for you to know these secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you this. It's for you to know this. And so you see, when we're in relationship with God, when we belong to him, he says, uh, says, uh, now he can't tell us everything because we wouldn't understand everything because he's God and we're not. (laughs) But he tells us what we can understand, what we can know about his intentions. And so he says, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. He makes known to them how he deals with his people. And he wants us to know this. It isn't just that it's rational to us or makes sense to us, or this is the only way we could survive if we thought these trials were really purposeful. No, 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 no. He says, I'm telling you. God says, I'm telling you. I have a purpose for all these trials, and that purpose is really good. That purpose isn't to make you sin. That purpose isn't to, to, to make you fall away from faith. That's not my intent at all. My intent is good. In fact, James will deal with that. We'll come to this in a couple of weeks, probably later in this chapter, in James chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself te- tempts no one. Now that word tempt, Tempt or temptation is exactly the same word as trial for osmos. It's the same word. But we see God's intention for parosmos, God's intention for trials is good, not to tempt us, to lure us away from himself, but rather to strengthen us in our faith in life towards him. And his, his purpose for us is good. Verse 16, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is uh, from above coming down from the father of lights. He says, my purpose in this is not for you to fade away, is to fall away, but my purpose for you in this is good. It's, it's really, really worth it. So count it joy when you meet various trials, right? For the testing, the trying, the testing of your faith produces something that is a means through which God always works to bring this good to us. Um, so this trial, you see, is a testing of our faith. Now, Edward, it isn't testing like a professor tests you. You either pass or you fail. It's a testing uh, like you're testing a piece of metal and purifying it. Right? The way Peter puts it in 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 6, he writes this. He says, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Same kind of thing. Grieved by various trials. So that 
the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation at the revelation of Jesus Christ. She said, I'm putting you through this to purify you. Not just to purify your faith, but to purify you. That's the good that will come. I'm making you, as we'll read in a moment, perfect, that is mature in Jesus, complete in him, lacking nothing. That, that, trust me, God says, through this trial, through the means of it, I'll bring about that which causes you to grow up as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus. That's the joy of it, you see? That's why you can count it as joy. You know that. You know, really you do, that though it isn't joyful in that sense at the moment, it's painful at the moment, the trial. It's difficult, it's confusing at the moment, the trial. He says, trust me, through this testing, you'll be refined. You'll be purified. This is my... This is the way I do this, right? And so that what you need to do, what this testing will do in you, is produce steadfastness. And let steadfastness run its course. Have its full work. Have its full effect. Don't bail. Don't bail in the midst of this. See it through. Continue on in the midst of this. You know, athletes know this. They know practice is painful. And yet, they have to trust their coach that this practice pain will be worth it. And they know it's going to produce in them something that's really good. They're going to grow up as an athlete. They're going to grow up in that sport so that they'll be winners, victorious, whatever it is. Uh, Students should know this too. Studying, it's painful, it's hard, takes work, all of that. But you trust in your professor, or at least in the system, that this pain that you're now experiencing will grow you up as a student in that field and you'll be more competent in it. And, and so at the end of the day, you'll, you'll grow up and so you continue to study, you see. Um, if we go to a surgeon and the surgeon says we need this surgery, we know that that surgery and the recovery is probably going to be painful. No matter what the surgeon tells you, it's going to be painful. And yet you're willing to do it. Why? Because you trust that pain will be worth it at the end of the day. When it's all over, you'll be better. You'll, you'll be mature in that, if you will. Complete. God says, yes, that's how life works. And I work that way too, spiritually speaking. The way that you grow up, the way that you mature, you need to understand this. You need to know this. Is through these trials, so don't give up on them. Be steadfast. Hang on. Continue. See them through, you see. So often we tell students mid-semester, don't give up. (laughs) Don't give up. Keep hanging there. They tell athletes mid-season, don't give up. Keep going with the program. Be steadfast. This is the way you mature. I tell couples in marriage, don't give up. I know you want to. No, it's really hard, but, but, but understand, this is God's laboratory. This is how he grows you up in various ways. 
It may take a decade or two, I've seen, in marriage. But a day will come when you'll be old and you'll look back and you'll be so grateful. And you'll say, those days were worth it. I'm glad I persevered in the midst of it, you see. And God says, yes, that's how life works. You need to know that. You need to trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm God. You know what I'm doing? I'm good. I know what I'm doing. I'm wise. I know what I'm doing. I'm powerful. I've proven it on the cross. Keep going back and looking. When you get confused, oh yeah, they, he's the same one who died for sinners. I'm a sinner. He's the same one who died for me, who saved me. Okay, that's good. I, I see that. I see it in the life of Jesus. Pain brings good. I see that. I, I see that pattern, if you will. And, and now I need to believe that now in the midst of this trial. But please understand. I know that in the midst of trials that are painful, this isn't a walk in the park. That's why he tells us. That's why we put these things in our heads. That's why when we go to each other and, 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 and the other is suffering in a particular way, we don't say this flippantly, but somehow we try to work it in the conversation, right? Somehow we, we try to work it in the conversation that, that this is how God works and there really is good that is to come, right? The good that is to come, he talks in Ephesians in chapter 4, and, um, verse 11. He said, he gave the church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to grow up to mature manhood, or mature Christian maturity, we could say, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, or to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint with which it's equipped, with every part, when every part is working properly, uh, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, says, we need to know this is what's happening in the midst of the trial. That God is working in such a way to grow us up that we'll be mature so that we won't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine that's going to come our way. So he may be teaching us something in that regard. But more than that, he's going to be working in something in us that's essential to us as followers of Jesus, conformed to his image that is love. At the end of the trial, you see, if we stick it through, we'll be those who love or reach attain well, that which is true of Jesus, if you will, not perfectly, till he comes. But, but to really love these things will cause us, soften us, melt us, perfect us in love. And he says, you can't get there without this. We know that in relationships. And uh, forgive me for using another marriage example. If you're not married, or if your marriage is difficult. But, but in the context of marriage, of course, what happens is, is that we're first, we think we really love our spouse or the one we're to engage to, our fiancé. But really, we're deeply in like. 
right? We really like them. And, 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 and over time, in the course of marriage, love grows, you see. Because love means that I'm doing that which is best for you, not me, whether you like it or not. And you'll find things in the course of marriage that happens. You'll meet trials. And they'll shake hands with you. And they say, we're going to be in this for a little while. And over the course of that, you see, if you persevere through that, at the end of the day, you'll know what love really is. And at the end of the day, you'll say, that was worth it. To know that, you see. To be perfected. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn, I think, that... um, when we go through trials, we need to remember the goal that God has for us. And the goal is good. And the goal is that he's going to raise us up. We have to, 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 to grow us up. We have to realize, too, secondly, that, that when we face uh, trials, we need to realize this is the way that we grow up. Everybody. There is no other real way to do it other than through the course of these tests these things that try us. This is simply true. This is simply the way that it is. But then to realize that God, we use this expression, I use this expression, you've heard this expression, is more concerned about our holiness, our maturity in Christ, than our happiness. And that's true, but that's not the last of it. It's true in the sense that he's so concerned about our holiness that he's willing to put us through difficulty unhappiness, to get us to this place of holiness. But be aware of this, know this, that he does that because he's most concerned about our happiness. He's most concerned about our joy. Because you see, there's no happiness really, there's no real joy ultimately without holiness. And so when we say he's more concerned about our holiness than happiness, don't stop there. Don't think that he doesn't care about our happiness or our joy. He does. That's the point of it. He cares most about that. The unhappiness, the trial, the difficulty is simply the means to get us to real joy. And so he says, no. So I I, want to tell you the end. So that in the beginning of it, you'll be able to import some of the end. So when the trial starts and it progresses, no joy is going to come. Real joy. Not simply this contentment that I all is well, but the real feeling of that. The real knowledge of that. The real sense of that. The real experience of that. And so start with it as much as you can. No, this is what's going to happen. And so don't be discouraged. Don't be depressed. Hang on. God is with you. At the end of the day, you'll say it was worth it. I don't know when the end of the day comes, by the way. But at the end of the day, you'll say it was worth it. Because it's good. Therefore, you say, count it all joy. When you meet various trials. Because, you see, you know this. That the testing of your faith brings steadfastness. This testing requires... But you hang in there, bring steadfastness. But let this steadfastness have its full impact, its full effect, its full work in your life. 
because it will produce and make you perfect, complete, lacking nothing. It'll grow you up. And you'll look back and you'll say, it was worth it. Let's pray, Father, for us. I pray that you would cause this word to be more than just, uh, you know, words on a page, words said, but true in us, that you would work it in us, really. And as we face trials, and we all are facing them, and if they're not severe, they will be, sometime in the course of our lives, pray that this word would be in us, that we would know it, And we would know that all who persevere, all who are steadfast, and are trained then by these trials, will receive the crown of life, eternal life. So please, God, enable us to continue to remain, that we might grow up. Many facing trials right now some in marriages, some as singles, some fighting temptations concerning their own sexual identity and orientation, some financially, some physically, some just simply in the context of the world in which we live and looking at what's going to happen, God, And so I pray that you would train us, that you would teach us, that we as your children, as your friends, would receive this insight from you, this revelation from you, to tell us what you're doing, and that we might believe you, and that we might value then, above everything else, growing up, being mature, lacking nothing, being complete, living righteously before you, that that would be what we value so that any trial would be worth it because that good is better than anything else. So please, I pray, work that in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.